0: Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, and I hope that you were able to listen last week to my uh, podcast segment and where I told you about this interview coming up today with two very distinguished guests, um, Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen. We Way back in 2000, They were driven by an encounter with an innocent man sitting on death row. Having heard his tragic story, they made a decision to write a play, The Exonerated. And I told you quite a bit last segment um, about how, in a little bit about the play. And I also read from their book um, some of the uh, cases. It is such an honor and a pleasure to have you both on the program today. Welcome, Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen.
1: Thanks for having us. We're glad to be here. We're
0: really happy to be here. Thanks for having us, Harriet. Wonderful. All right, so first, we have so much uh, to explore, but what I wanted to do, I did tell my listeners last week um, about many things that you uh, gave me in your resume, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your connection to the world of theater?
1: Sure, well, we both started out as actors and continue to work as actors. Um, In 2000, I had just moved to New York after graduating college in order to go to acting school here and Eric had been working um, as an actor in New York City for about 10 years. Um, when we met. And so we got into theater through acting first and through character first, but both of us had always written sort of more privately, less professionally um, for many years. And we were always interested in writing and making our own work and beyond being in other people's work. Um, And so when we heard the story that led to us getting the idea for the exonerated we immediately thought of making a play we weren't playwrights we weren't professional playwrights we really taught ourselves how to write a play in order to write that play because we were so passionate about the material but we came to it through being actors first and
2: what we're known for uh is uh doing what's called documentary theater there's a long uh, history of uh, living newspaper type theater in the united states um, influences that people, people that have influenced us are, are, are uh, uh, Anna Devere Smith, who of course did Twilight Los Angeles, uh, Emily Mann, who did a, a documentary ty- style theater piece about Harvey Milk called Execution of Justice. Um, if you want to go way back, there's a fellow named Studs Turkle who uh, wrote a book called Working. Um, uh, which is sort of interview based, uh, interview based uh, drama was, was, was sort of a, a thing for him as well. So there's, there's sort of a long history of it, but, um, exonerated, uh, was conceived at, a, a Jess and I, Jess, Jess and I are married now. We've been married almost 20 years. But uh, as one of our first dates, she invited me to a death penalty conference. And, and it was early in the relationship when you say yes to everything. Normally, I would have said that's a little strange. But, uh, but she invited me to this death penalty conference, and we found ourselves in a, in a classroom uh, listening to a cell phone call from a guy uh, who was, at the time, uh, in Illinois convicted. As he was known as one of the Death Row 10 which were um, uh, these uh, group of people that had convictions uh, tortured out of them by a particular police commander, and, um, and uh, there was nothing uh, uh, keeping them on death row save these quote-unquote confessions. Um, and uh, we were immediately in tears, and we were very moved by the, the interview that was taking place over this rudimentary cell phone technology. Um, and uh, but I turned to Jessica uh, and uh, being the pragmatic after it, after it was over, being the pragmatic sort that I am, and saying, "Look, everybody here is a priest or a minister or they're a death penalty uh, activist or a, or or a, you know or a lawyer, a defense attorney. Like this is preaching to the choir. Like how do we get these stories out to a wider audience?" Like I said, you know, we had these deep, this deep well of influences from Anna Devere Smith and Emily Mann, and I was friends actually with uh, Moises Kaufman, who'd done the Laramie Project. And that exactly. we point, like, he
1: was still writing, it. he was still so writing it, hadn't it. Come out yet?
2: Um, and and you know, we were like, why don't we do interview-based theater? Why don't we do documentary-style theater? So that's when we got the idea. And uh, just a month and a half after that, we started our initial round of interviews on the phones.
0: <coughs> All right. So once you decided that the best way to tell the stories of innocent people in death row, how did you begin the long journey?
1: Well, I mean, like I said, we really taught ourselves how to write a play in order to write this play, and in particular, documentary theater, we've since learned, is really its own animal. I mean, there's a piece of the work at the beginning of the process that's really not unlike investigative journalism. Right. With a conventional play, you sit down at the computer and you start typing. Right. Right. Um, This this has a much more involved process right up front. Right. So we knew we like Eric said, we were both really influenced by documentary theater as a genre and both really interested in it. And I think we knew intuitively on some level that what we wanted to do was. What we wanted to do was bring the emotional experience that we had listening to that phone call in that room, the immediacy of it, to people who wouldn't think that they would care about the subject or who might think really differently from us about it, people who are maybe pro-death penalty or had never even considered that wrongful conviction might be a thing that exists, right? Mm -hmm. We wanted to bring the emotional experience, the immediate emotional experience of wrongful conviction to that audience right who people who might read about it in a newspaper and have an abstract intellectual relationship to it but not really feel it right so we knew i think intuitively that the way to do that was through documentary theater right rather than making up a story ourselves as authors a fictional story of a wrongful conviction you know those can that can be wonderful but we wanted to have a very direct impact about something that was really happening in the world. And so we knew that talking to real people who had lived through this and creating a play from those interviews was the way to go. So um, we we went home, we did a couple of months of research on the subject and really educated ourselves about it. And then um, we put we we were, I mean we were really a couple of kids when we started working. Mm-hmm this project. We were in our 20s and actors, right, who hadn't written a play before. And so we put together um, an advisory board of people who were more experienced than us um, in all, all fields, in journalism, in law, in theater. Um,
2: included people like Mike Farrell, uh, who's uh, been a, a staunch uh, uh, advocate for justice, criminal justice reform in the United States. Um, you know, I always admired his work. Um they were former
1: congressmen, for, right people who people who had been around enough to let us know if we were ever headed down the wrong path and to give us good advice. And then we learned from that. And then we approached the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University. We called them up and we said, "Hey, this is what we're doing. We'd like to we're trying to get in touch with death roads on a reason. I think they spent some time vetting us. Mm-hmm. I would assume that they called some of the people they knew who were on our advisory board to check us out and make sure we were real before they put us in touch with anyone. And after several conversations with them, they finally said to us, look, here are the folks that we know, the exonerees that we know who want to tell their stories and who have done stuff with us in the past in terms of being out there and telling their stories to the media. And that was something that was really important to us. I mean, part of our ethos as documentary theater makers is that we don't chase stories. We don't pursue people who don't want to speak to us about what they've been through. Right. So we were really looking for the people who were enthusiastic and you know because this this is really it's traumatic material and talking about it can be re-traumatizing so if somebody was like i don't want to put myself through that again we respectfully said we are very sorry to bother you but center on wrongful convictions helped us identify the folks that really did want to talk um and then once we had that contact information, we cold called people on
0: the yeah,
2: phone. And we and we we talked to forty people over the phone and around twenty in person. Um, uh, uh, you know, we used the sort of initial calls with people to sort of, you know see if they were interested and to to to, to suss out the, uh, the the ins and outs of their stories, a lot of these stories you know, the internet was sort of in its infancy then. So a lot of these stories, you know, you could get a little bit uh, off the internet about what the stories were about, but, you know, really hearing from the people themselves was very powerful and very moving. And, you know, we really very early on saw it as our job to kind of stay out of the way and try to let that direct experience that we were having, interviewing and talking to people be reflected in the experience the audience was having. That was our main goal. And, and, you know, before we knew it, Exonerated was up and running in uh, New York as a series of readings. Uh, then, um, you know, uh, Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon got involved, and the floodgates opened in terms of the the people that were uh, that were showing up um, to uh, to help us on our mission. And um, and then uh, shortly after that series of readings, nine uh, eleven happened. Uh, we thought that you know uh, we didn't know if anybody was going to make anything that remotely smelled uh, like a political theater ever again. Um, And we were really frozen and then Tim Robbins called us up from uh, the Actors Gang in Los Angeles which is his long uh, long standing uh, amazing theater company and he said, hey, do you guys want to come do Exonerated here? What's going on? And we were like, yeah, we'll do it. And So we showed up to do that. That got great reviews and on the power of those reviews Bob Balaban uh, directed the production in New York City and uh, uh, and uh, the show ended up running for almost two years off Broadway.
0: All right, well, you, you really, <laughs> I was gonna ask you a number of questions that you already answered, but I, I wanna go back for a moment to the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University. Um, tell us, first of all, what they do, and then I learned from your book, which I hadn't known, that in 1998, That center gathered 28 exonerated death row inmates for the first time anywhere. And I wonder what it must have been like for those people. It kind of reminds me of the Innocence Network conferences. Do you know anything about the Innocence Network?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 What's what's amazing is that actually, so Eric and I met in 2000, um, but... Once we, I guess it was once we started working on Exonerated, he opened up his filing cabinet. I went into
2: my filing cabinet there. I actually have the article from the, I think it was the New York Times, or it was pretty sure it was the Times about that conference, that mm. uh, featured uh, some of the people who uh, we interviewed for Exonerated, and um, I had saved an article about that previous to previous to um, meeting Jessica, just sort of, you know. Um,
1: but, you know, for no, just for no apparent instinctively, reason, instinctively, right? I just for thought
2: I, I was very moved by it. And, and you, know, um, you know, obviously now, these days in the 21st century, we're all networked together and, and, and people have an easy time finding each other. But the idea of bringing... Uh, that many people together who had had that shared experience and and um, and, uh, and 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 you know uh, bringing in the press and stuff like that. I thought it was it was it was very moving. Um, yeah, I thought yeah. it was a I thought it was a pathway forward to to real justice reform. And, you know, and as the grandson of a of a highway patrolman and the great grandson of the judge, you know, I feel that there's some some work that I need to um, undo. Mm. <laughs> um, um, and you know um, um, you know i I, uh, I, I feel a, uh, an incredible sense of uh, patriotism uh, and responsibility uh, for what's been uh, done in our name and uh, and wanna want to make sure that we can do our best through art to rectify that so
0: mm. um, I, I wa- Oh, go ahead, Jessica.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Center on Wrongful Convictions...
0: Larry Marshall.
1: Larry Marshall, at at that point, he's not there anymore. I believe he's at, still at Stanford now, but um, they were doing really incredible work, and it still exists um, at the law school. Uh, it was, I think it was a co- co-led co project involving both the law school and the journalism school. And... Um, at Northwestern where they would take on likely wrongful conviction cases and reinvestigate them. Um, because, you know, that's, I, your listeners probably are familiar with this, but that is one of, the, one of the, you know, unscientifically we found one of the leading causes of wrongful conviction is that most wrongly convicted folks do not have defense attorneys who can match the resources of the prosecution. So there are massive investigative resources going into the prosecution side, and most wrongly convicted defendants never, ever had those kinds of resources going into their defense, right? So to And can't afford it because You're, it's hugely be, expensive. You'd be
2: hard pressed to find a wealthy person on death row. Yes. Right. right.
1: So, yeah. you know, one of the things that the center did and does is work with law students and journalism students and train them as investigators but doing actually by taking on cases that really look like they are wrongful convictions right that really look like the wrong person is there and reinvestigating them i mean and for me as
2: a as a as a cisgendered white guy um for me it was a real eye-opener into how the justice system in the united states really works and how um how uh uh the tremendous uh uh racial inequities uh within the system itself are just are just uh magnified over and over and over again um it was it was a really uh it was a real disturbing wake-up call for me um you know i'd always considered myself to be a fairly aware dude and and but you know talking to people who had actually gone through it um you know especially uh um, um uh, delbert tibbs african-american man who's, who's no longer with us uh, sadly um, it was a real, it was a real eye opener. You know, I consider uh, each of the people that we spoke to, uh, teachers of mine, and I I, I, I learned a lot. And what I learned made me angry. And I, I'd like to say that you know, sort of, there was a more noble reason that we sort of like, you know, stayed with the project. But it was largely my anger uh, <laughs> that that kept me going. Because um, you know, this, this must not, this, this cannot stand. You know,
0: I, that's it's interesting. You should talk about your feelings about the justice system, I wanted to ask both of you uh, two questions related to the justice system. How well-versed were you at the beginning about our criminal justice system, and what beliefs did you hold at the beginning before you learned so much from the many exonerees that you met? That's a
1: great question. I think you get a different answer from each one of uh, us. (laughs) Hysteric?
2: Jessica was significantly more woke than I am. That's <laughs> I, mean, I, I wouldn't. You know, I come from. I, I come from. I, I wouldn't say my roots are conservative. You know, I, I I've got fairly strong uh, uh,
1: DFL, right?
2: D- Democratic Farm League uh, 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 leaning uh, sort of tendencies, and and have always bent towards social justice in in my in my own personal life. But you know, I, I really like being the grandson of a, a highway patrolman and the great grandson of a judge. I was really raised to think that that the system was fair and equitable. And you know, when uh, when I was confronted with these stories over and over and over again, you know, uh, the uh, the uh, fairness and equitability. Uh, uh, idea notion was 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 pretty quickly beaten out of me by um, by the stories that we were hearing. You know, um,
1: I mean, I think you grew up in you know you grew up in northern Minnesota, which right. you haven't said yet, right? So that's the, I feel like there it's a fairly homogeneous place, but also progressive right. in many ways. Was, right? It There's it was, a long-standing yeah. Democratic Party, but it's also you know fairly straightforward. Right. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I was you know, I, and you know the one of the cases was a was of a, a, a my friend Gary Gogger. Uh, he uh, he was wrongfully uh, accused and convicted of, of of killing his own parents. I mean, he didn't he didn't even have uh, a time to mourn them before the police were on him. You know, uh, uh, and uh, you know they elicited a false confession from him, a quote unquote vision statement of what he would have done had he killed his parents, and then he they 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 sort of got this out of him and then he burst out crying like it, it and said none of this happened and i you know it, it was what was done what was done psychologically to each of the people that we that we uh, spoke to uh you know uh qualifies as a war crime and and, and and it would qualify as a war crime according to the geneva conventions i mean the psychological kind of torture and and, uh, and berating that and that people were put through for being a suspect was um, astonishing to me. And of course, you know, to my African-American friends and, and, um, and my Latino friends, um, it's not, it's not, uh, a surprise, but I mean, to me, it was
1: right. Well, I mean, I think having grown up with, you know, a sort of very rural, but sort of good, your, your highway patrolmen, Relative is like a good cop. Yeah, I thought, (laughs) I mean, I guess
2: maybe, you know, I don't
1: know. Right. I mean, I think you grew up with that model of like, if you're a moral person and you tell the truth, the system works. Right. Right. And it was a rude. There was a very rude awakening. I mean, I remember remember traveling around the country with you and talking about that. Right. As we were doing these interviews, I grew up in a very um, sort of activist oriented family. Um, My dad was um, an army psychiatrist in Vietnam. He was drafted in the doctor's draft in 1965 and came back and was a charter member of Vietnam Veterans Against the War. um, And then became part of an activist group of Vietnam vet psychiatrists that helped get PTSD into the DSM, which was actually a political fight. Um, And then was the first head of the Vet Center's counseling program. Um, for the VA so we moved to Washington when I was a kid so that he could run the vet centers um, many years ago and um, my mom was also an anti-war activist they were together after my dad had come home from Vietnam and she was also really involved in a lot of um, activism around midwifery and natural childbirth which was controversial at the time right so I grew up in a um, in an activist family that then also put those activists, beliefs to work in in the system as well right trying to change the system Um, my first protest was outside the south african embassy against apartheid in third grade so you know I, i that's my background and i was always um and i should say also because of my dad's work too i was very aware of um trauma as being political. From a very young age, I think that's very baked in. And um, the idea that the system puts people through hell, right, and then considers them disposable uh, and doesn't doesn't have things in place to heal the damage that is done by the system was something i think i absorbed in relationship to war at a very young age and i was really raised with the ethos from both of my parents that we all have a responsibility to help heal that and to help correct that mm-hmm. um, and so i w- and i always i had not had no contact with the criminal justice system before we started working on the Exonerated, um, but I was always uh, drawn to it as a site of activism. Right, I was always really drawn to criminal justice reform, um, because, and prison reform in particular, um, because I was aware of the horrendous things that happen in the name of the in the system, and also the sort of coexistence with those ma- of those massive injustices with this really beautiful blueprint that we have in the constitution for a system that could be fair Mm -hmm. if it actually was enacted in the spirit of justice right so i feel like america contains both things right there is the promise of real justice and real equity and that dream and then the fact that in extremely violent and extreme ways, that promise is being undermined. And those things coexist simultaneously. And I believe that as a person who has a lot of relative privilege in this society in particular, that it's my responsibility as a citizen of this country to help push us towards the good. And and that I, we don't I get agree. end on the road,
2: I agree with Jessica on that. But you know, lately, um, especially with the public execution of George Floyd and, and a number of things that we've encountered this year, I just you know I, I I'm 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 you know my heart is heavy. Um, mm-hmm. It is it is it is um, every every day that we feel like we're making progress, something like that happens. Breonna Taylor, George, you know. Uh, in particular the George floyd incident um, disturbed me the most because it it was in my home t- my hometown of minneapolis mm. and uh, you know and you know having a a grandfather who was a cop from the state of Minnesota it just just it just really hit home in a way that that I can't I, I don't think I'll ever get over right
0: all right we we are almost out of time and I I wanted to, for first of all, I wanted to ask you if you'll come back so we can talk some more. Will you do that? Absolutely. Okay, (laughs) in unison. Um, And I wanted to get into uh, next time the nitty gritty of some of your experiences as you crisscross the country to uh, put the play together. So um, I thank you very much for being with me today. And we're going to pick it up next time uh, and talk some more about your play and also what you're doing right now. So um, my, I hope my listeners come back and listen again. And thank you for listening today uh, to Pursuing Justice.